Most of us know that um, countries are almost always represented by animals. And so I'm going to give you a test right now to see how well you do with countries and animals. And uh, they're going to be 10 questions and one extra credit. And so you get to see what your score is. We'll start out easy, but it's going to get harder. Number one, a bald eagle, USA, good. A bear, Russia, oh, good. A beaver, Canada, yes. A Bengal tiger, India, yes, great. A giant panda, China, good. A kangaroo, <laughs> oh, you're doing good. A kiwi, New Zealand, yes. A Komodo dragon, Indonesia, Indonesia. Okay, a lion, England, yes. And you have about 20 choices on that one. A springbok, pardon? Yes, South Africa, South Africa. And now our extra credit, a nightingale. It's been in the news every day this week. Ukraine, that's Ukraine, the nightingale. And so let's stop and pray for Ukraine. Well, Father, we, we live in a wonderful world in some ways, in a world that's really a mess. Our privileges, our blessings are innumerable. We've lived really good lives in this country for which we thank you. Our country has not really been touched a lot by war within our lifetime for most of us here, and we are so grateful. We've not been invaded. We've not been killed. We've not had our land and our livelihood taken from us. But there are people all over our world for whom that's a reality. People in Congo and Africa have died in countless numbers. And now the people of Ukraine. We pray that you'd be a merciful God. I know there are many, many Christians in that country whose lives are completely upended right now. And uh, war is horrible. We don't like it and we don't want anyone to suffer from it. So we pray for peace and protection of people's lives. And uh, have mercy on us, Heavenly Father, we pray. And as we look at your word again this morning in a passage of the Bible, that's a little scary, but also incredibly hopeful. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In our text of Scripture today, which is Daniel chapter 7, it's one of those chapters of the Bible that you might read through it and go, oh, I don't know, I'm going to skip this one. But it, it's full of animals. Um, because Daniel is going to have a dream, and in his dream, he's going to see empires and kingdoms and nations represented by animals. And it's a dream that God gave to Daniel, who's the, one of the, probably the most insightful person apart from Jesus that's ever lived on this planet. He was able to see the future more than anyone who's ever lived, except for Jesus and maybe John in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. But Daniel's probably number one in the history of the world. God gave to this extraordinary man the ability to see what was going to come into the future. And it's a picture that both is incredibly frightening and incredibly hopeful, both. And so we're going to look at that pa passage of Scripture here today. Now, let me just give you some real quick background. The prophet Jeremiah who was one of the last prophets of the nation of Judah, who prophesied around the year 600 BC. <clears throat> he was told by God to communicate to the people of Judah that they were going to be conquered by the Babylonian people 
And Jeremiah, the prophet of God, told God's people to surrender. He told them to surrender to the opposing country because that's the only way to save their lives. They did not listen to the prophet. God's people have never listened to prophets. And that's why we've been in great trouble throughout all of human history. People do not listen to the prophets. We listen to false prophets, but not true ones. And they did not either. And so they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians in a series of sieges and uh, deportations. And so what does Jeremiah do when his people are now being besieged? He told them to surrender and now they refuse to surrender. So now what does he tell them? The guy's a weirdo. He says, okay, you're going to go into, you're going to become exiles. And here's what I want you to do. Build houses, plant gardens, pray for the country in which you're going to be as slaves or as exiles. Pray for the well-being of that government. And remember, your exile is temporary. In 70 years, I will bring you back. Well, the people of Judah who went into captivity, they took Jeremiah seriously. They did build houses and they did settle in. In fact, most of them never went home, including Daniel. He never went back. Ezekiel, he never went back. Esther, she never went back. Most of God's people who went into exile in Babylon, present-day Iraq, and Persia, present-day Iran, they never went back to Israel. And that's why you had this huge number of Jewish people spread all over the world called the diaspora. Many of them in what we today would call Muslim countries. And many of them have left now and gone to the country of Israel. Well, Daniel was one of the exiles. He was taken as a young man, roughly 15 years of age, into the country of Babylon, and he was brainwashed, or at least they tried to brainwash him. It did not succeed. They tried to brainwash him into the ways of the Babylonians, into the religion and the literature of the Babylonians, into the culture of the Babylonians, and then to use him as a pawn against his own people. It didn't work because he was thoroughly, thoroughly immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. He followed God. Well, God caused him to prosper under the reign of the greatest king of the Babylonian empire, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel became uh, his most trusted advisor and one who was able to wisely give advice to the king as well as to interpret the king's dreams. And we came across that in some of the previous chapters. Well, now we're going to come to a passage of scripture that is going to take us back in history from our passage last week. Remember, last week we did the chapter 6, which was Daniel in the lion's den. That took place historically in 539 B.C. We know that. The dates of Daniel are very clear. In many events in the, dates of, in the book of Daniel, we know the exact day of the year it happened. But now as we get to chapter 7, Daniel's going to go back, not to the, um, he's going to go back to the beginning of the reign of King Belshazzar, who was the last king of the Babylonians. Remember, last week he was in the the reign of Darius, the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. So he's going to go back in time, and now Daniel is going to relate to us a dream that he had. And in his dream, he's going to tell us about six kingdoms. He's going to tell us about a succession of four kingdoms that are going to look like animals. 
And he's going to tell us about those kingdoms. And then when he gets to the fourth kingdom, he's going to start, he's going to talk about some of the characteristics of this fourth kingdom that are still in the future. That's the fifth kingdom. And then he's going to talk about a sixth kingdom, the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at five human kingdoms, four, and then one that comes out of this one, and then the kingdom of God. So Take your Bibles, if you have now, Daniel 7, and we're going to run through one of the very, very wild and wonderful passages of the Bible. It begins with Daniel telling us about four animal-like kingdoms. Here's what verse 1 says. In the first year of of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, we know when that is, 553 B.C., That's the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. Daniel, at this time, is about 68 years old. Remember last week in the lion's den? Daniel was 81 years old. So now he's a young man in his upper 60s. So, so to be. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind. At night, he was dreaming And visions mean that in successive, um, what's I call them? In in successive stages, revelations were given to Daniel. While he was lying in his bed, what did he do? He wrote down the substance of his dream. In other words, Daniel knew that this dream from God was very important. And you know, those of us who have dreams, if you don't write them down, you forget them. Daniel wrote this one down. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Well, customarily, as you know, the wind blows only from one direction at a time, but here it's like a tornado of great violent uh, winds. Wyoming knows a lot about that. Great violent winds over the sea, churning up the waters of the sea. Now, the word winds is the same word as spirits. So the the text can mean that the four winds were stirring up the sea, but also the angels of God were stirring up the waters. He's going to now tell us about nations that are being stirred up, are in turmoil and unrest which, of course, evokes a picture of uh, great fear. Can you imagine what it was like a week ago if you were in Ukraine? And you know, Ukraine has many of God's people there. Can you imagine what it was like as every day you heard about more and more tanks, more and more um, uh, soldiers lined up on all of, almost all of your borders? What would it be like for you? You saw what was, we've seen on the news, people running into the subways, hiding, some trying to fight back. God says there were going to be great, great turmoil. If you had any inclination that there's going to be turmoil, great turmoil among nations, you're, of course, scared. And so now Daniel, in his vision, sees the seas churned up, and out of that picture come four beasts. Now, the first beast is As verse 4 says, the first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, 
so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. Now remember, this dream given to Daniel parallels the dream God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was of a statue with a gold head. Daniel's dream given by God is of a of a lion with wings, which anyone in the ancient world, even today, there's not a person with any brains in America today that when you see the symbols of Babylon, guess what you see? The symbol of Babylon was a lion with wings. We have them all over our world today. You can see what it was like 2,500 years ago. So we know this is the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian Empire is depicted as a lion with the wings of an eagle, which we have many pictures of that. But the wings were torn off, probably an indication that either Nebuchadnezzar's insanity or the declining power and integrity of the Babylonian government. Its wings were torn off, but then it was lifted up from the ground. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He ate ate grass like a cow until he came to acknowledge the God of heaven. And he was lifted up and what was given to him? The mind, a sound mind from God. His kingdom was restored, the greatest kingdom that Babylon had ever seen. And so this is probably a depiction of the Babylonian empire. The lion suggests an animal that is powerful and strong. The wings depict swiftness of flight. Both are symbols of of, um, Babylon. Torn off wings uh, depict a dramatic change in the kingdom. Maybe his insanity. And then it suggests that the beastly nature was changed into a heart of compassion. So it was with the Babylonian kingdom. But then he moves on to the next animal kingdom. Verse 5. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw a head of gold and a shoulders and arms of silver. Daniel sees the head of gold in his dream as a lion with wings, but this one now is a bear. What is it about a bear that, that, he, that depicts now this being the, the Medo-Persian empire? A bear, of course, we think of as, we have bears in this area, ferocious and powerful. But in this particular verse, he's probably trying to indicate that the appetite of this bear for the conquest of land. Because what characterized the Persian Empire more than anything else was not really its fierceness. That was the Assyrian Empire. Not its humanity. That was the Babylonian Empire. But rather, it's, it, 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 it had an, the kings of Persia had an insatiable desire to eat up land. And so they went all the way into India and they kept going farther and farther to the west until they got to Greece. And they fought battle after battle after battle with the Greeks and they lost. They didn't turn around. They couldn't. Their pride was at stake. And so they kept, their appetite was insatiable for land and that's what killed them. But this particular bear, as we see here, uh, was, had two sides. One side was bigger than the other. The Persians eventually outstripped the Medes and the three strips, the three um, um, ribs in its mouth are probably some of the empires that they conquered, namely the, the Lydians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. And here was the empire 
with a voracious appetite for land conquest. But of course, as you saw the text of Scripture says, um, it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Who told them that? I don't know. Maybe by divine appointment, God appointed this particular empire to create a, an appetite for world domination that, of course, fell apart because of the third beast. That's verse 6. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that was the bronze kingdom, the kingdom of the, the legs, the speedy portion of a body. But here for Daniel, the vision is of a, a leopard with wings. It's like when we say the fastest uh, animal, land animal in the world is the cheetah, and some of the birds are the fastest animals in the world. And these two are combined because Alexander conquered the world with an amazing speed. The, his appetite for conquering was not the, the part that is most noted about the Greek empire, but rather the speed with which he conquered it. But, Dan, but uh, Alexander, at only 33 years of age, died. And he made no plans for succession because his infant son was killed. And then there was a 20-year battle among his generals. They eventually cut up his kingdom into four parts, just as the Bible predicted. And uh, the key to this particular kingdom was its speed. There was a man, as you probably know, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. You ever learned that song? He was one asked, once asked, you know, he died at the Alamo. He was once asked, how do you win battles? And he said this, the firstest with the mostest is the one who's going to win. And that was Alexander the Great's motto. I'm going to be the first with the most. Alexander's armies weren't huge, but they were the fast, incredibly fast. The firstest, the blitzkrieg, like the German Nazis used in World War II. But now he comes to the fourth empire, and this is the one that he elaborates on. And this beast is indescribable. Well, I guess he can describe it, but it's not like any beast we know. There's something about this kingdom that is terrifying. Here's what he said. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. That's quite a picture. Can you picture that? Here, this is some... Uh, he, it's, it's like no known animal... Because this one had, had iron teeth, and, and it, 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 it's, it crushed and devoured anything that came into its path and trampled them. But it, it had ten horns. Horns are symbols of power and authority. It had ten horns, but then there was an eleventh horn that sprung up, and this eleventh horn had eyes, and this horn with the eyes uprooted three of the ten horns and had a really big boastful mouth and was incredibly smart. So what's going on here? Well, this is the Roman Empire. 
This was, remember, when um, um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was the, the bottom legs with the feet of iron and clay mixed together. So now there's another kingdom. This one is only vaguely like an animal. It's, it's, it has p- powerful horns. This, the authority of this particular beast has, is very, very, very widespread. Um, uprooting uh, indicates a violent military overthrow of something. The eyes are symbolic of insight and intelligence, unusual mental ability, and the mouth is full of blasphemous claims about themselves against God. So there's his dream. What, what can you make of that from the start of it? Well, let me make a few observations. The sea is a symbol of the nations that are churning. This image would, would invoke in any human being a fear and uh, anticipation of tough things ahead. And out of this sea come these weird, ferocious animals, which represent empires. And these empires become progressively more powerful, inhuman, and unanimal-like. The empires get worse than the worst of the animals. The picture gets scarier and scarier. The fourth animal is, comp- is particularly creepy and powerful. That fourth animal has horns, and one of those horns has human-like insight and is mega arrogant. And that little horn springs from the fourth beast and eventually has great power over everything. Well, that's the dream. And of course, it's scary. Um, by the way, if we looked at the um, you know, European people as of one week ago, had been going on 75 plus years of relative peace. That's pretty good. That's really good, actually. And perhaps they had a sense of all of them coming together with the Euro and the European nations coming together that, and the various treaty organizations that uh, we got this war thing licked. Because as you know, Europe has had war after war after war through the centuries. I'm sure as of a, not long ago, there was a sense among European people that we're pretty safe. All that was completely shattered in a week. This week, when a power of the bear came in and decided to take over a sovereign nation. And now, as we speak right now, many, many people, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, who knows, are being killed right now. Why? Because of the megalomania of a, of a, of a leader wants power. And how do you stop that? And like the Roman Empire, he has massive military power. The Ukrainians, of course, don't have any of that. If Daniel's dream stopped here, there'd be only reason for despair. And and frankly, if you look at human history and you remove God from the picture, you're a little bit of an idiot if if you're not despairing. Because if you think that human beings are getting better and better all the time by our education and our legislation, you're an idiot. How do you know? Just look. Just open your eyes. The past 100 years have been by far the most brutal period in human history. By far. There's no even com- close comparison. Things are, are and, and the, the power that, that nations have now with nuclear weapons is, 
well, easily can destroy the whole planet. Thankfully, God will prevent that. But it's very, very possible. You would, how, how do we mark our history? Oh, do we mark our history by how well the stock market did? Is, is that how we do it? No, we mark our history by catastrophes, depressions, wars, 9-11. That's how we mark our history. That's a reminder to human beings that most human history is rather brutal. And in fact, we don't give thanks enough for the peace that we do enjoy. All we do is complain when things go bad. But we should, especially as Americans, have been spending a lot of our time thanking God for a measure of peace because kingdoms rise and they rule and they ruin, but all will fall. And so what a dark picture, right? Wrong. Because Daniel's dream isn't over yet. We're now going to move from Daniel's dream, which is a rather, rather sad, but the scene is going to shift now from earth with these animal-like kingdoms to heaven in a very different setting that's very serene and very good. Here's the next verse, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now the thrones, who sits on those thrones? We don't know. Maybe it's angelic beings. We don't know. Maybe it's um, uh, saints, God's, God's people, who we don't know. But the thrones are set in place, but there's one major throne, and one called the Ancient of Days took his seat. That, of course, is a depiction of God in his role as a judge. It's like God now in the throne room of heaven is going to sit on the throne or the judge's seat, and he's going to now meet out justice. Now, if anyone is going to be someone who meets out justice, what characteristics would you want them to have? Well, first of all, You'd want them to be righteous and holy. And it says his clothing was as white as snow, righteous and holy. The hair of his head was white like wool, which is a depiction of being old and wise. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. He, he, he meets out justice, but his justice is just. His throne is pure. And a river of fire means punishment coming out from the throne before him. So this is a God who now sits on the throne of heaven, who meets out justice. Nothing gets past him. He knows everything. But the picture's not over. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's 100 million, maybe 100 million angels there. And the court was seated. All rise, be seated. And now the king is on the throne, and the books were opened. What books? Well, the Bible tells us, particularly in the book of Revelation, and all throughout the Bible, that God keeps records. Of course, he's got a computer bigger than anything we've ever th- dreamed of, but he keeps records. And what does he keep records of? Over and over again in the Bible, God keeps records of human works and the works of nations, not just individuals. He has a complete perfect record of all of our deeds, all of our deeds, all of us. And one day, every human being, including every one of us, will be judged by our deeds, not our thought, not not our intentions, but by what we have done. 
Nations will be judged by our deeds. This nation, we got some bad ones, as you very well know, by which we will be judged. We will be judged by our deeds. And of course, the books were opened. God now looks at these nations and at individuals, and he has a record of all of our deeds. That's what it says. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. That's that one horn with the eyes. I kept looking until the beast was slain. That's the fourth beast and its body destroyed and thrown into blazing fire. The other beasts had already been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. So it said, here's the judgment of God, a picture of it being poured out on the beasts and the horn. In my vision at night, I looked And there before me was one like a son of man. Here's the first time in the Bible we have that term, son of man. And by the way, over and over again, Jesus is the one who called himself the son of man. When he was asked what his name is, I am the son of man. Everyone who knew the Old Testament knew he's referring to this passage, the very passage that we're at now. Here's the one, the son of man. There before me was one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now that is hopeful. There was one who is called the son of man, who will be the one who will carry out the sentence of God's judgment. Why? Because as Revelation tells us, there's only one person that has ever existed that is worthy to carry out the just judgment of God. Only one. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He's perfect in his behavior, perfect in his wisdom, perfect in his justice, and all of us are deeply flawed. All of us. He's going to carry it out. This is, by the way, as I said, the first reference to the Son of Man, who, of course, is Jesus himself. Well, what do we gain from that? Well, God does not want us just to focus on what happens here on earth. He wants us to catch a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. And in heaven, there is a God who is just. And he has meted out all judgment to his son, the son of man, who is also the son of God. And he will carry out God's judgment, but he will also end up being worshipped by all human beings. He will create a kingdom that will never, ever end. During World War II, a missionary from Japan said that the Japanese military police would go to Japanese churches and the pastors and the elders were taken to the court. And when they were brought to the court, they were asked two questions before they were condemned often to die. Number one, do you believe that Jesus Christ will return the second time as the Bible teaches? And if these pastors and elders said, yes, that's the first question. Here's the second. After Jesus Christ returns, do you believe the emperor will worship Jesus Christ? or that Jesus Christ will worship the emperor. And if, in fact, they said the emperor will worship Jesus Christ, they were dead. 
Of course, they were wrong as well. And by the way, I said before, and it's absolutely true, that all judgment will be based on our deeds. And God has a record of every deed we've ever done. But guess what? Who is the one who's going to carry out that judgment? The Son of Man. And the main word for a Christian in the New Testament is one who is in Christ. So, if in fact we are in Christ, when all of those deeds that we have done has all been covered over by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that when God looks at our track record, instead of seeing all the things we have done wrong, He sees the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the essence of Christianity is this. Are we willing to acknowledge that we have fallen incredibly short of God's righteousness and that we have asked for the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ to give us his righteousness so that our track record before God is clean? So we have this choice, every human being. Do we wish to stand before the judgment of God based on our righteousness or Jesus' righteousness. I mean, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And why, I can't imagine a human being that wouldn't say, oh, please, oh God, I want Jesus. I can't possibly stand before a holy God and, and, and declare my righteousness. That's absurd. I don't get through an hour. My only hope is that I can be covered by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. That's all we are. We're people who are honest enough to tell God the truth. We have failed miserably. We have no right to God's righteousness, but we have, we have received that free gift of God's unmerited favor through Jesus Christ. And God promises that if you're in Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to us. I mean, that's the greatest gift any person could ever, ever, ever receive. Christ's righteousness. Well, the chapter ends with Daniel being scared spitless. (laughs) Here's what happens. Daniel looks into the abyss of human evil, and then he looks into the throne room of God, and he's shaken. He's shaken to the core. And so his confusion uh, brings him to uh, ask an angel, you got to tell me, what, what does all this mean? And here's verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Duh. Of course it would. I approached one of those standing there. This would be in the throne of God. And asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four beasts are four kings that will arise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So there's the whole description. On earth, there will be kingdoms, and they will, um, they will rise and they will fall, but there will be one kingdom that will be eternal. And that should be the end of the chapter, right? Uh-uh. Because Daniel says, uh, what about that uh, crazy horn? Here we go. Then I wanted to know the meaning of that fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with his iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left, 
I also wanted to know about the ten horns on his head and about the other horn that came up before which the three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another kingdom will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time and times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale but I kept the matter to myself. Well, by the way, this is going to, at some point, what I just read, we came to things that we have a very clear, historical, documentable understanding of. But at, at, at one point in this, it talks about the fourth beast and out of which comes 10 kings and out of that comes three that are replaced by one and this one takes over the whole world. There's no there's nothing we know of in human history that fits that picture. So many Bible scholars, myself, I'm not a scholar, but I certainly would include myself in this list. This is talking about what's coming in the future. As you know, in the future, if you know anything about prophecy, we have the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The day will come when there will be a counterfeit, unholy trinity of Satan counterfeiting God the Father, the Antichrist counterfeiting the Lord Jesus Christ, and the false prophet counterfeiting the Holy Spirit. And there will be a cosmic battle. And in this cosmic battle, the, the, the battleground will be earth. The people who will get hurt most are God's people because the unholy trinity has a hatred, not just of God, but of God's people. But ultimately, of course, God will prevail. I might have mentioned to you, when I was in high school, I played football. And my senior year, we had a very good team. We were undefeated. And uh, one of the teams we played against was called Northwestern Military Academy in Wisconsin. As I said, we had a very good team my senior year. And at halftime, I don't remember the score, but we were ahead something like 42 to nothing at halftime. And so obviously, with a score like that, it was impossible for our opponents to beat us. But in the second half, something tragic happened. I don't know what their coach said, but he probably said, okay, we can't win this game, but we can play dirty. So under the, the, the piles, they were punching, biting, scratching, and it got so bad that a fight broke out. I remember the stands cleared. My father was in the stands. He came out of the stands to try to break up the fight, and someone on the opposite team took off their helmet and hit my dad over the head with his helmet. And then, of course, the game was called. We never finished the game because of the fight. And that reminds me of Satan. You see, at the cross, the game is over. God won. When Jesus died on the cross and walked out of that grave, the game is over. 
God has won, but it's only halftime. And Satan, though he cannot possibly win, has a, 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 a malicious hatred for God and his people. So what does he do now? Just like the team that we beat, now you play dirty, real dirty. That's what he's doing now. He can't win, but he certainly can, can get a pound of flesh. And by the way, what I talked about, what's going to happen in the future, this is going to come back in chapter 8 and in the succeeding chapter in Daniel. We're going to come back to it. But all I'll just say for now is he gets a, a, a summary explanation about this fourth beast and uh, this one horn. That, this one horn is a picture of the Antichrist. We'll come back to him in succeeding weeks, Lord willing. The ten kingdoms, we don't know exactly what that is, but it seems like it's some Roman Empire-ish conglomerations or cooperation of nations. What is this fourth beast? It's something like the Roman Empire in its power and its might. We don't know exactly what, it's, what it is. This one horn, who is the Antichrist, will have extraordinary intellect, extraordinary power, so much power because behind him is Satan that in the book of Revelation, he will receive a fatal wound. Fatal means you die and will recover, which means Satan will even counterfeit the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's how serious it is. There will be a person whose power will be worldwide, whose insight and intellect will be off the charts, whose mouth will be mega, mega arrogant and egotistical, who will defy the living God, and who will enjoy a period of great power and influence for time and times and half a time until he ultimately will be destroyed by the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Well, let's end this today, and we're coming back to that wonderful subject in the future. But uh, how should we then live in light of Daniel chapter 7? Number one, Daniel 7 is a message from God about the Gentile kingdoms. Remember from a few weeks ago, this portion of Daniel is written in Aramaic, the lingua franca or the English of that day. This portion is a prophecy given by God to Gentiles. Chapter 8 now is going to shift back to Hebrew for the rest of the book. That's given to Jews. This is to Gentiles. It's a message from God about Gentile kingdoms, empires, countries, political entities. Here's the message. All kingdoms fall. So, saints of the Most High, do not prioritize the temporal kingdoms of the world over the eternal kingdom of God. All empires fall. Children of God, do not prioritize the kingdoms of this world over the kingdom of God. Because if you do, you will be deeply disappointed. And we do that, especially in America. Number two, though we like to speak about the progress of civilization, and we like to glory in our human achievements, we mark our history by wars and catastrophes. God clearly sees human history as a chronicle of immorality and brutality and depravity. And over time, nations tend to become more and more powerful, controlling, and beast-like. 
And this is not thwarted by education and legislation. By the way, in the 1930s, arguably the most educated country in the world, the most scientifically advanced country in the world was Nazi Germany. I should tell you something. But the flip side of that coin is, although human history is not a record of, it's not a record of continual failure and man's inhumanity to man, the dark side of history is often penetrated by rays of light and heart. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, after he, he, he acknowledged the true God, he was raised up and given a human heart. So we, as God's people, should always advocate for the heart, for justice, and oppose the misuse of power like Daniel did. That's our calling. We're people who stand against injustice because we're God's people. And the evil of nations and the evil of empires will be judged by God. How many of you have been to the UN? If any of you have been to the UN, you notice that there's what's called the Isaiah Wall. On the UN building in New York, this is what it says. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's Isaiah 2, verse 4. But guess what? They skipped the first part of the verse. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4a. And God shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And then they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Conveniently, they skipped the judgment of God, which precedes the millennium, the gift of God, of true justice. One thing that's obvious in this chapter is the hatred with which hate, Satan hates the people of God. So we need to be people who fight on our knees because we will be the objects of that. And one day human evil will have a chilling climax. So we need to steal our souls. Someone wrote this. One day a human being of astonishing malevolence, arrogance, intelligence, ungodliness, and power will dominate the world. And the primary target of this evil one will be God's people. But and here's where we end. One day, God will intervene to abolish evil and establish eternal righteousness. We place our hope in God because God is in control. He knows everything that's going to happen. And it doesn't mean it will be easy. But what it does mean is it will be good and right. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, not a real pleasant subject, but so hopeful to know that you do know everything and you, you, love, you love the people of this world. And uh, we again grieve for this, those all over our world this day who suffer so greatly under evil governments or wars or um, such graft and, 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 and misuse of power and all kinds of terrible things that happen in our world from which, for, due to your grace, we've been saved, some of us, for a little while at times. But even in our own nation, we have so many evils, Heavenly Father. Please have mercy. Lord, Heavenly Father, may this body of, of your people here in this precious town, may we be so, so deeply empowered by your Holy Spirit that we become agents of righteousness and justice and goodness and peace and hope and confidence and, 
and, and all the good things, the fruit of your Holy Spirit. And as we live our lives, may we be just like Jesus in little ways. May we represent him where we go and whatever we do. And it's in his name, the incredible son of man, we pray. Amen.